Well, hello everyone. My name is Nick, in case you don't know me. I'm one of the men here at King's Church, and it's my joy to preach uh, this morning. Um, we're going to be carrying on through our series uh, called Sketches. We're looking at the book of 1 Samuel in the Old Testament. And just to say, I was so encouraged by Jason's word there. Um, you know, when we come to the Bible, it can often feel like we are searching for God. But actually, the Bible says that it will search us. And so it's good that when we start to look at it, we begin by praying. So let me just do that for us as we continue our series. Yeah, Father God, thank you so much for this opportunity to come before your word. We thank you that you've not left us in the dark as to who you are. And thank you that your Holy Spirit is with us. And we ask, God, that you would teach us now uh, from your word. I pray that you'd help me to speak out your truth and you'd help all of us, Lord, to listen to what you have to say to us today, that we might not leave this room uh, the exact same way we came in, but we might have learned something of you and uh, apply it to our lives. We pray this in your name. Amen. Now, hands up if you've ever been or currently are a member of Amazon Prime. Yeah, as I suspected, quite a good number. Um, now, I absolutely love Prime, I have to say this. Especially around December time, I inevitably have forgotten a Christmas present or two, and so I always sign up around December just so I can uh, immediately uh, remedy my error. So if you don't know what Amazon Prime is, essentially, with a couple of clicks online, you can have bought your present, and then within 24 hours, you will be united with your purchase. There's no need to leave the house, get in the car, pay for parking, and inevitably take on the hordes and hordes of people that have come into Kingston around Christmas time. There's no queues, there's no stress, and you don't even need to get out of your pyjamas. To me, Prime is one of the most convenient technological advances of our age. I absolutely love it. And really, we live in a society that wants everything conveniently quickly. We have microwave meals, 24-hour tube services, fiber-optic broadband, we, the Amazon Prime generations, are generally happy to cough up a few extra quid in order to get something that little bit quicker. And there's so much that is good about that. Gives us a chance to uh, free up time for more important things, whether it's spending time with family and friends, uh, time to study maybe, time to pursue our hobbies. But there is also a downside to a culture of instant gratification. We are worse than ever at practicing patience. Now, I've seen this study by the University of Massachusetts uh, where it says people are only willing to wait a matter of seconds now for a video to upload on their smartphone. If it doesn't load up in five seconds, 25% of people are off. We've closed the app and we're on to something else. Five seconds more, so 10 seconds, and 50% of people have given up. We just don't want to wait for anything, less of all a video on our smartphone. So we do get bored and we tend to get a little bit frustrated these days in things that take time to build or consume. But not everything uh, worth having or enjoying in life comes instantly. For example, if you're going to build a career, it's going to take years, even decades, to build up. And qualifications often needed for a career, they take time to study for and experience to put into practice. Now, I realize not everybody will fall into what's called the millennial generation. This is kind of people aged, well, born between 1984 and about 2000. Um, but a lot of this culture is prevalent in society in general. And there was a video that went viral last year uh, by a well-known author and speaker called Simon Sinek. And I'm going to put his quote up on the screen because he talks about this lost art of patience amongst people. 
He says, it's as if they are, talking about the millennial generation there, standing at the foot of a mountain. And they have this abstract concept called impact they want to, make, they want to have on the world, which is the summit. What they don't see, though, is the mountain. I don't care if you go up the mountain quickly or slowly, but there's still a mountain. And so that this young generation needs to learn is patience. That some things that really, really matter, like love or job fulfillment, joy, love of life, self-confidence, or a skill set, any of these things, all of these things take time. Sometimes you can expedite pieces of it, but the overall journey is arduous and long and difficult. And if you don't ask for help and learn that skill set, you will fall off the mountain. And you can add some extra things to the next list. I think friendship, I was thinking about this. Friendship takes a, an investment of time and effort to cultivate. You need to listen in order to be a friend to somebody. Or if you want to become an expert at anything, you need to know a subject really well. You'll have to read books rather than tweets. There are some things in life we just can't cut corners on. I think Guinness got it right when they came up with the, the advertising slogan, good things come to those who wait. And deep down, we know that waiting, as long as it's for something good, is worth it. But waiting is also hard. We don't find it easy. So let's look to the Bible today for some much-needed wisdom on the matter. So we're going to turn to 1 Samuel chapter 24. And it's going to come up on the screen in a moment. But we're at a really interesting part of uh, the story. We've been going through it. We resumed the series last week. And it's a tale of two kings, David and Saul. We've got David there on the left and Saul on the right, and they contrast incredibly. So David, uh, a few chapters ago, uh, was anointed by God. He's going to be the future king of Israel. He was a humble man with humble beginnings. He started life as a shepherd boy, and he's, a, he's described as a man who's after God's own heart. He's highly courageous. We saw that in the story of David and Goliath, the well-known one. And he's a worshipper as well. David wrote so many of the Psalms, so whether he was going through highs or lows, he continued to praise God. Saul, he's the king who's currently on the throne. He was originally anointed by God, but he's started to reject God's rule over his life. And he's jealous, very much so, of David's success, particularly after the Goliath episode, the women of Israel, they were singing a song, and they sang that Saul had slain his thousands, but David his tens of thousands. And that really annoyed him, and it started to try and kill David over the last few weeks. We've been looking at this. And he also, he ordered the deaths of 85 priests in 1 Samuel 22. The contrast between David and Saul is, is massive. And uh, after the, over the last few chapters, you see uh, Saul's jealousy reaching new heights. He's been looking to kill David at any and every opportunity that he gets. And the end of chapter 23 is a bit of an epic escape. It befits a blockbuster film. You've got Saul and his men on one side of a mountain and David and his on the other. And you think, is this going to be the moment they meet? Is this going to be where David gets his comeuppance? And then right at the last moment, you get the Philistines come and they, uh, they do a raid on Israel and it requires the king's attention. He's got to turn his attention back to domestic matters. And that's basically where we pick up the story here in 1 Samuel chapter 24. David's respite is very, very brief. Let's read. So starting verse 1. When Saul returned from following the Philistines, he was told, Behold, David is in the wilderness of En Gedi. So Saul's got his spies. They've located him. He's in the wilderness. Then Saul took 3,000 chosen men out of all Israel, and he went to seek David and his men in front of the wild goat's rocks. And he came to the sheepfolds by the way, where there was a cave, and Saul went in to relieve himself. 
Now David and his men were sitting in the innermost parts of the cave. I think this is an exciting episode. What on earth is going to happen next? We've got Saul. He's got this massive entourage. He's taken 3,000 of his chosen men, the very best men in Israel. And it's a good five times more than what uh, David has with him. And we know that from the previous chapter. It says David had 600 men with him. So the maths is initially looking very, very good for Saul indeed. And it's also worth pointing out this slightly strange episode. It's pretty unusual for ancient historic records, like 1 Samuel, uh, to document royal trips to the bathroom. It's the kind of thing they tended to leave out. But the Bible doesn't shy away from it. And I think the reason for that is because it's an important detail. It explains why Saul left his 3,000 men. He doesn't have any bodyguards. He doesn't have a presidential motorcade. He's all on his own. So suddenly, instead of the comfort of an overwhelming majority, he's very, very vulnerable. So let's read on to see what happens. Verse 4. And the men of David said to him, Here is the day of which the Lord said to you, Behold, I will give your enemy into your hand, and you shall do to him as it shall seem good to you. Then David arose and stealthily cut off a corner of Saul's robe. And afterward, David's heart struck him because he had cut off a corner of Saul's robe. He said to his men, The Lord forbid that I should do this thing to my Lord, the Lord's anointed, to put out my hand against him, seeing he is the Lord's anointed. So David persuaded his men with these words and did not permit them to attack Saul. And Saul rose up and left the cave and went on his way. Now we've established in 1 Samuel so far that David already had his future mapped out for him. He's been promised by God he's going to be the future king of Israel. But what he hasn't been told yet is when that's going to happen. And here, almost as if in bright neon lights, is a juicy opportunity for David to accelerate the process. David's destiny is drawing ever so near. Or that's certainly what his men think. Did you see what his men thought of it? They're absolutely united in their belief. Down in verse 4, they say, this is your time, David. They might as well say, thus saith the Lord. This is what they say. Here is the day of which the Lord said to you, behold, I will give your enemy into your hand, and you shall do to him as it shall seem good to you. Now, I was thinking about David's men, and you can't really blame them for their reaction. After all, it's not just David's life that's in danger here. The men themselves, they're risking capture, their own injury, or perhaps even death to further David's cause as the king in waiting. David, think of all the pain you could spare us. Take the sword to Saul, strike him down. We will be free men, and you can be our king. You can almost sense that that might be their logic. Now, David listens to his men, and he begins his action. What's he going to do? Well, he quietly creeps up towards Saul, and he cuts off a corner of his robe without the king noticing. Now, we don't know exactly why um, David cuts off a piece of Saul's robe. It could be symbolic. So apparently, um, in ancient times, kings, uh, they would have had these big robes, and uh, when you won a conquest against another king, uh, you'd cut off a bit of their robe and stick it onto your own. So a king's robe would likely have various different colours, and it would kind of be a symbol of their, of their honour, their glory, of all the kind of battles they'd won. That's what I've read anyway. Um, but, so he's kind of cutting off a little bit of um, Saul's honour by snipping his robe. Whatever the reason was, it does show us that David had the opportunity to kill Saul, had he wanted to. But what does he do? Well, instead of plunging his sword into Saul's side, David relents, and he immediately returns to his men inside the cave. 
David could have struck Saul down and become king very, very quickly. So why didn't he? Well, the basis, the reason for that is going to form the basis of most of the rest of the sermon. His motivation can be summed up in two parts. Firstly, David actively trusts God's timing. David actively trusts God's timing. Now, as anybody who's lived in the UK for any length of time will testify, queuing is one of the most common forms of waiting we endure day to day. Now, I'm not sure about you, but I don't particularly appreciate British queuing until I go abroad. And then you see that the unspoken but important rules of queuing are largely ignored. Now, how can single file queuing be so difficult? Anyway, I'm not going to rant about queuing. Um, The best queue, though, that I've ever been a part of um, was one to get into the tennis championships at Wimbledon. I'm sure various of us have probably done that at certain points. Now, queues are generally a basic necessity. They're just something to be endured rather than to be enjoyed. And uh, whatever it is, you're you're just trying to um, get what you're queuing for, whether it's a ticket, a coffee, um, wherever it might be. But not at Wimbledon. I've never had so much fun in a queue. First of all, you don't actually have to stay standing, which is key, because you have to queue for several hours, and the really committed people, they go overnight to get the best tickets they can. Everybody brings a rug to sit on, you bring a picnic blanket and a picnic to enjoy, and there's kind of a real community feel about queuing at Wimbledon. You can actually strike up conversations with complete strangers, which is a rarity in London, and receive offers of sausage rolls and the like. But the highlight for me was a few years ago when I not only met a former Wimbledon champion in the queue, a guy called Goran Ivanisevic, and there should be a picture of me with him in the queue, but uh, I actually got served coffee by him, a free coffee. It was Lavazza. It was pretty good. Not as good as our coffee at church, but it was still pretty good. And Ivanisevic, he's one of my heroes, to be honest. He he won Wimbledon in 2001. He was uh, unseeded, beat Tin Henman in the semi-final. That was a shame. Um, And basically, I've bored people with this story ever since, the day I met Goran Ivanisevic in the queue at Wimbledon. And my point here is that waiting can be enjoyed. It can produce something of worth, and that's what we see in the story of David. Now, waiting in the Bible is a theme that actually pops up from time to time. It's not an isolated incident. It's something that various characters go through, and often you see that it shapes their life, something of their character. And probably none are more famous than Abraham, whose long wait to have a child uh, and a descendant. But waiting in the Bible isn't like a queue in a supermarket where you just got to get through it to pay for your shopping. It's more like my Wimbledon experience. Things are supposed to happen while you wait. Things that can change the whole experience for you. And biblical waiting is not passively whiling away the time, but it means actively trusting God. Biblical waiting is actively trusting God. It's a gift, and it can be a formative experience. So we'll go back to the story of David. Now, if David had remained passive, he might not have killed Saul, but it's likely that one of his men probably would have. David had to stand up to 600 men in this cave. And in verse 7, it says, David persuaded his men. Now, apparently in the Hebrew, the word is a lot punchier than that. It's a lot stronger. It means to cut down or to tear apart. So David is using strong language, and his men were baying for Saul's blood. Not only does David have to resist his own split conscience, but he also has to talk down hundreds of battle-weary men. Yeah, no. to be shocked by that. It's extraordinary. 
Now, I think there are two, at least two things in play here in David's waiting. On the one hand, he trusts God's timing because he is sovereign or in complete control over both his life and all the circumstances around it. But there's another aspect to it, and it's that David trusts God's timing for justice. As well as the desire to stop being on the run and to fulfill his destiny as the king of Israel, David also would surely love justice. Saul has been trying relentlessly now to kill him for months. Surely this man deserves death. And yet David trusts God to deliver justice in his timing. You can see that later in the passage when David appeals to God. He says this, he says, May the Lord judge between me and you. May the Lord avenge me against you, but my hand shall not be against you. David insists that God has the final say on matters of justice. And that requires trust, or what we might call faith. Now notice here, David doesn't just shrug his shoulders at injustice. He's not a doormat. He actively trusts the God he knows who, to be sovereign and just. And if we know who God is and what he's like, it will change the way you live. It's good to know that God is sovereign and just. And I think it's good to challenge ourselves by asking, if we truly accept that God is in complete control and he's fully fair, how would my life look differently to what it does now? How would it change the way that you wait for things, whether it be for a spouse, a job, a change in your circumstances, a prophetic word to be fulfilled perhaps, or even for the new creation itself. Being a Christian, you will come across times where you have to wait. And if we're able to wait like David, we will see the gospel advance like him too. Now the fruit of David's active trust in God's timing for his life and for justice is this act of mercy that we see. And it is a small picture of the gospel. David doesn't repay evil with more evil. He shows Saul mercy. And we might say to ourselves that we are nothing like Saul. We've never ordered the deaths of somebody. We've never tried to kill someone. But we are far from innocent. We're not perfect. God is holy and righteous. And we, um, and we fall short of his perfect standards all the time. Sin is often a slippery slope. We start with a jealous heart like Saul, and the issue just snowballs. We get further and further entrenched into our wrongdoing. But with God, it's never too late to change direction. And Saul was even given that opportunity here, even after all his awful mistakes. God always extends his arm of forgiveness to us. And while we're often worried about waiting for God to act, he is so tremendously patient with us. So, so far we've seen David spared Saul because he actively trusts God's timing. Now, the second reason David chooses not to kill the king is because David trusts God's word. We'll go back to the passage, verse, uh, carrying on from verse 8. Afterwards, David also arose and went out of the cave and called after Saul, My lord the king. And when Saul looked behind him, David bowed with his face to the earth and paid homage. And David said to Saul, why do you listen to the words of men who say, behold, David seeks your harm? Behold, this day your eyes have seen how the Lord gave you today into my hand in the cave. And some told me to kill you, but I spared you. I said, I will not put out my hand against my Lord, for he is the Lord's anointed. See, my father, see the corner of your robe in my hand. For by the fact that I cut off the corner of your robe and did not kill you, you may know and see that there is no wrong or treason in my hands. I have not sinned against you, though you hunt my life to take it. 
May the Lord judge between me and you. May the Lord avenge me against you, but my hand shall not be against you. As the proverb of the ancient says, out of the wicked comes wickedness, but my hand shall not be against you. After whom has the king of Israel come out? After whom do you pursue? After a dead dog, after a flea. May the Lord therefore be judge and give sentence between me and you and see to it and plead my cause and deliver me from your hand. As soon as David had finished speaking these words to Saul, Saul said, is this your voice, my son David? And Saul lifted up his voice and wept. He said to David, you are more righteous than I, for you have repaid me good, whereas I have repaid you evil. And you have declared this day how you have, dwe- how you have dealt well with me, in that you did not kill me when the Lord put me into your hands. For if a man finds his enemy, will he let him, away- let him go away safe? So may the Lord reward you with good for what you have done to me this day. And now behold, I know that you shall surely be king, and the kingdom of Israel shall be established in your hand. Swear to me, therefore, by the Lord, that you will not cut off my offspring after me, and that you will not destroy my name out of my father's house. And David swore this to Saul. And then Saul went home, but David and his men went up to the stronghold. Now, next month, I have uh, an anniversary coming up. It's not one many people celebrate, to be honest. It's been 10 years since I learnt to drive and passed my driving test. And it's been quite a ride so far, excuse the pun. And I look, forward, I look back quite fondly to when I first started learning. But man, was I haphazard. I had no idea what I was doing. Well, that's how it felt when I first started pressing down on the accelerator. When I first started learning to pull out of junctions, uh, that was when I particularly had problems. I didn't have a clue what a safe distance was. And sometimes I'd back myself, yeah, I can get into that flowing traffic, no problem. I'd just come straight out, which to any sane human, it was just patently unsafe. Thankfully, though, I had a long-suffering driving instructor, a guy called Ryan. And he knew better, and he'd tell me if I was going to make a mistake. Nick, don't, don't pull out there. Or he would just take control of the pedals if danger was imminent, and that definitely did happen a few times. And the reason I trusted Ryan is because he was a fully qualified driving instructor. And not only that, but the more time I spent with him, the more I realized that it's better to listen to him with all of his experience and credentials than just to trust my basic instincts about what was safe. Until eventually what he told me uh, became ingrained in my mind. And that was what changed. That's how I became a safe driver. And so several months on, uh, his instruction, his wisdom, uh, his uh, input, whatever you want to call it, it was clear. I was declared, for better or worse, uh, fit to steer my car onto the UK's roads. Now, I think my experience of learning to drive has similarities to David's situation here. He unashamedly has his L plates on. Because ultimately, he's come to learn not just to trust his own instincts, however logical they might seem, but instead listen to the God who is infinitely more qualified to make the big calls whether a ruling king should live or not. Now, notice how many times David, David honours Saul in his speech to him. I don't know if you noticed that. It's really interesting because he calls him, my lord the king. He even bows to him. He pays homage, like a, a mark of respect. He calls him, my Lord, my Father. And perhaps most significantly of all, he calls Saul the Lord's anointed, something that actually was true of himself as well. And this is Saul we're talking about, somebody who was so insecure, who was murderous, who was corrupt. And David calls him, my Lord, the King. This is all the outworking of faith. It's trusting God's revealed word. Who does God ultimately say Saul is? 
Well, for all his failures and all his shortcomings, Saul is still God's anointed king on the throne for now. David's men called Saul his enemy. David, though, calls him my lord the king. There's a huge difference there. And I wonder, where do you or where do we see things differently to God? Perhaps it's in our attitude to other people, like we saw here, people that we've written off for whatever reason. Or it might be how we perceive ourselves. We believe lies rather than welcoming God's truth over our lives. Or maybe it's actually how we think about God. We're mistaken. Are there things that we believe about him uh, that are at odds to what it says in the Bible? If any of those three things resonate, it's best to ask God, not just to give you a fresh perspective, but his perspective. Don't overtrust your instincts. Lean on God and his word and have the humility to drive with your L plates on. So, so far we've seen David both trusted God's timing and he trusted God's word. And third and finally, we need to see how God's timing and God's word come together perfectly in the person of Jesus. So we're going to skip forward to the New Testament. We're going to look at Matthew chapter 4 and starting at, verses, um, start, starting at verse 8. Now in this little excerpt, Matthew documents uh, the trial and temptation of Jesus. It's all before he begins his public ministry. So Jesus is actually somebody who had to wait a lot himself. He didn't start uh, preaching and healing the sick until he was about 30. And just before he starts his public ministry, he goes into the wilderness for 40 days and he doesn't eat at all. And I think there are real echoes of David in 1 Samuel here in uh, Matthew chapter 4. So let's just read these verses. Again, the devil took him, that's Jesus, to a very high mountain and showed him all the kingdoms of the world and their glory. And he said to him, all these I will give you if you will fall down and worship me. Then Jesus said to him, be gone, Satan, for it is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. So Jesus here is being offered the kingdoms of the world and their glory. He's been promised the nations of the earth as his inheritance. And the Bible tells us that he'll be both the king of kings and that there's a day coming where every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus is Lord. And Jesus, though very obviously very weak physically, imagine the hunger of having 40 days in the wilderness not eating. He was weak physically, but he was strong in spirit. He doesn't cave in. He absolutely trusts in God's timing. And after all, he had a mercy mission of his own to complete, but one on a much larger scale than David's. It wasn't just one man who plotted to kill uh, Jesus. And his offer of mercy, Jesus's, this is, is for all mankind. It's for anybody who wanted to kill him, and it's for all who sinned against him, both in the past, in the present, and in the future. And for the cost of Jesus, the cost for Jesus was far, far greater. So Jesus trusts God's, God the Father's timing. And he also trusts in his perfect word. Did you notice how he combated the devil's testing? He quotes scripture right back at him. It is written, you shall worship the Lord your God and him only shall you serve. In our waiting for God, people who follow Christ, people who call themselves Christ followers, we're called to follow in Jesus' footsteps. Not to pick up a physical sword to bring an end to our frustrations, but rather to take up the sword of the spirit, which is what the Bible calls itself. And it sustains us through the waiting. Even when we're physically hungry for 40 days, the Bible can sustain us. It's God's gift to us. Now, just as a little aside, Jesus clearly trusted the Old Testament. Um, it's something he's repeatedly happy to do um, through his life. Was that he, he trusts the Old Testament. He said, it is written. God says. So we've seen, like David, Jesus trusted God's timing and he trusted God's word. 
but there's more to it. Jesus is God's final word, and he is the answer to the right time for justice. There's a few places we could go in the Bible for this, but let's just quickly turn to two passages. Hebrews 1, verse 1, and Romans 5, and then we're going to finish. So let's start with Hebrews. It says this, Long ago, at many times, and in many ways, God spoke to our fathers by the prophets. But in these last days, he has spoken to us by his Son. And it says elsewhere in John's Gospel that Jesus is the Word become flesh. Trusting in God's Word is ultimately fulfilled in Jesus. And David, even before the time of Christ, was putting his trust in God's Word. And it would ultimately amount to putting his trust in Jesus. And then the second of those passages, Romans 5, uh, starting at verse 6, says, You see, at just the right time, when we were still powerless, Christ died for the ungodly. Very rarely will anyone die for a righteous person, though for a good person someone might possibly dare to die. But God demonstrates his own love for us in this. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. At just the right time, it says. Saul wasn't a righteous person. He wasn't a good person. He was an enemy. He was a sinner. And so it's such good news that uh, Jesus died for people like Saul. He died for anybody who has sinned. It says it died, he died while we were still sinners. It's not about uh, cleaning ourselves up for God. He will do that for us. Um, I might also invite Jamie and the band, Christy, um, up, and we're going to respond in worship in a moment. Um, but I just want to draw attention that the whole chapter, 1 Samuel 24, it starts with a man with a crown, Saul. And David was a man waiting to be crowned. Jesus, too, was a king in waiting, but he wouldn't wear a, a crown of gold, but rather a crown of thorns. And the Bible tells us that for those of us who trust in Christ the King, in his timing, in his word, in his justice, and in ultimately his death, we too will wear crowns one day and reign with him. And as I was thinking about that, it reminded me of one of my favorite old hymns, um, And Can It Be? And the final verse says this. Just think about these words, amazing. No condemnation, now I dread. Jesus and all in him is mine. Alive in him, my living head, and clothed in righteousness divine. Bold, I approach the eternal throne and claim the crown through Christ my own. Bold, I approach the eternal throne and claim the crown through Christ my own. I'm just going to end in prayer and then we're going to respond in worship. Yeah, Father, we thank you for your word. Thank you that it does search us. Thank you that it teaches us. Uh, thank you for what we saw there. We thank you, Lord, for all these reminders of um, David pointing forward to Jesus ultimately. And we thank you, Lord, that as David showed mercy to Saul, you have showed mercy to us. And Lord, help us to drink that in, to recognize we cannot save ourselves. There's no good taking things into our own hands, whether it's, it's saving ourselves or if it's something we're waiting for. Uh, it's always better to trust you. And, but that's difficult, Lord. We, we realize that. And we want to ask for your help, Holy Spirit. Come and be with us. Come and make us more like Jesus. Help us to embrace the Holy Spirit in our help, as our help um, for waiting times. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.